0: Start by repenting this morning, this evening, and, uh, and we are in desperate need of you. We do pray that you would bless this service tonight. We pray, God, that you would bless your word, Lord, that our hearts as followers of Christ would be uh, open, our eyes and ears would be open, Father, uh, that we would learn from the foolishness of the nation of Israel, and God, that we wouldn't travel down the path that they traveled down. We just thank you, Lord, for your love for us, and uh, we just pray you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in the middle of um, these five different woes pronounced against Judah. We began it last week with chapter 28. Between chapters 28 and 33, it's really kind of focused on these um, woes or burdens um, pronounced against Judah. That's really what the whole first 37 chapters of the book of Isaiah are centered on, is this idea that God says, hey, Judah, Hey Jude, right? Hey Judah, I don't want you to go down this path. I don't want you to stray in this way. I, don't, I want you to stay with me and, and to cling to me. And, and they just had you know, cotton stuffed in their ears and they refused to hear these things. They wanted to be called God's people. They wanted the benefits of being God's people, but they weren't willing to walk in God's ways. They still wanted to enjoy the sin of this world. You know anybody like that? Yeah, I'm a Christian on Sunday, you know, or yeah, whatever it is. And First Corinthians, the the t- the term that is used in First Corinthians chapter three is the idea of a carnal Christian. Ultimately, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. It's a, you're either living for God or you're not, uh, with the decisions that you make. And 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 Paul's point in Corinthians, and and really what we're trying to drive at here is to say. You can't live with one foot in each world. You have to make a call, a decision for Christ, and to follow after Him. The over—I'm going to lay all my cards out to begin. The overall theme of tonight is that rebellion is harder than obeying. Rebellion is harder than obeying, and the judgment that God is bringing against the nation of Judah is evidence of that. It is far easier to obey. It is far easier and it is far better to obey. So, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 1. It says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around. Now, this is interesting because I thought we were talking about Jerusalem. I thought we were talking about Judah. And he says, Woe to Ariel. And I'm sorry, but I cannot, growing up in Disney, I cannot read that verse without. Sebastian's voice, you know, from Little Mermaid, you know? Woe to Ariel, don't you know? <laughs> Under the sea where we are, you know? Woe to Ariel, whoa. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to actually the city of David, or the the, the term that we're familiar with is Jerusalem. So Ariel here equals Jerusalem, the city where David dwelt. You may ask the question, well, then why not Bethlehem? I mean, David grew up and was came from Bethlehem. How come we're not talking about Bethlehem in this case? And if you go down to ch- verse 8 of chapter 29, it says specifically Mount Zion, and, and that's giving us our, our reference as to what city he's talking about. But he says, Woe to Ariel, the city of David, uh, the city where David dwelt. It's interesting, the word Ariel can be translated in two different ways, and the commentators are kind of Divided on which connotation or which translation they're using here, Ariel can mean the Lion of God. The Lion of God. And of course, you know, Jerusalem in Judah, Judah the tribe, you know, the, the Lion of God. Um, Ariel, and so he may be, God here may be calling them that almost sarcastically because they certainly weren't acting like the Lion of God. They, their hearts were far from him. Um, that's maybe what they thought themselves to be, but they're blinded by pride and they don't realize how far they were. So if if the translation were to mean the Lion of God, it would be Him calling them that sarcastically. The word Ariel can also mean an altar, a, a place of sacrifice. And Jerusalem, Judah, is certainly on the altar and ready for sacrifice as the judgment is coming against them because of their disobedience. We know, I mean, you guys are familiar. This is Wednesday night crowd. You guys are familiar. We know God desires obedience above sacrifice, right? 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams. So if, if the translation of Ariel here is in fact the altar... It's to say that they're ripe for judgment. And and, and at the end of verse 1, it says, add year to year, let feasts come around. In other words, they were keeping the feast; they were adding year to year, they were living the quote-unquote Christian life, but all in hypocrisy. They they, they put on airs, if you would, but they didn't hold it within their heart. Verse 2 says, "...yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow." And it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound particularly pleasant. You're going to build up a, 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 a siege against us with a mound. You're going to raise up siege works against. And notice the personal pronoun here. This is God speaking, and he says, I will. I will do these things we've mentioned this a few times as we've gone through the book of Isaiah. Everything that came against the nation of Israel was at the hand of God. This was His intent. This was His purpose. Yes, He's using the Assyrian army to lay the siege works. Yes, they are the hammer, but that's just, they are just the instrument. God is the one laying the blows. This is the hand of God at work. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. In other words, the 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 hammer that's coming, the Assyrian army that's coming against the nation of Judah is going to lay God's people low. God's work will lay his people low. They're going to be crying out of the ground, out of the dust. So now he turns his attention in verse 5 and verses 5 through 8, to Jerusalem's foes, and the judgment that was coming on Jerusalem's foes. got to remember, just because God was using Assyria to judge the nation of Israel and, and doesn't make them righteous. Just because God was using Assyria toward a holy end doesn't make them right. They still had their own issues. They were also ripe for judgment, and so he's going to speak to specifically the Assyrians in verse 5. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. God's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And one night, an angel of the Lord wipes out 185,000 Assyrians. Like, Like the chaff blowing away. He's continuing with the idea of dust there. Verse 6, "...you will be punished by the Lord," speaking to the Assyrians, "...you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire." How's that sound? I mean, does that sound pleasant to you? I don't know that that's something I would particularly want to endure, you know? So, uh, thunder, earthquake, great noise, storm, tempest, and flame. No, thank you. (laughs) If I could choose whether or not I was going to walk through that, I would say, no, thank you. Or maybe better to say, thank you, Jesus, because he's walked through that for us so that we don't have to endure the wrath of God. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he wakes, and indeed is faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. And here's where, we're, where we get the reference for Jerusalem. Have you had that dream Man, that dream was so real, right? You wake up and it's just like, I was there. I, I experienced, I touched those things. I felt the, the joke is, you know, I woke up, I had a dream that I ate a giant marshmallow and I woke up and my pillow was gone, you know, that, that, that idea, right? You know, so, but that dream was so real. And that's what he's saying of these nations. The nations who fight against Mount Zion are as a dream that leaves you wanting. You've had that dream where you wake up and you go, oh, just help me to get back there. That was amazing. Let me me try to fall asleep real quick and try to get back. And that never works that way, does it? The next dream you have is some horrific nightmare. Kind of, never mind. Maybe it's just me. You're all looking at me like, whatever. No marshmallow dreams? Nobody? Really? Okay. Pause and wonder not about the dreams, but verse 9. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. This is a rebuke now to Judah's spiritual condition. They were headed into battle. They were headed into a war. And And much of our Christian life is that of a battle. Certainly there are joyous things to be had and and glorious things to behold within the, the, the walk with Christ. But much of what we endure between our day of salvation and the time we see Him face to face is the sanctification process. It is the grind. It is the difficult thing. And often it's referred to and likened to a battle. Would you want to go into that battle drunk? Would you want to go into a battle blinded? I mean, you're at an instant disadvantage if you allow yourself to be that way, to be blind or to be drunk. And so they're saying this is a a rebuke of Judah's spiritual condition. In um, the book of 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 5, verse 6, Paul warns us, "...therefore..." Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. He tells us almost like he was reading the book of Isaiah, reading this verse. Let us watch and be sober. He ties those things together because the the spiritual condition is that they were blind and drunk. And so he's saying that's not the way you want to be. Let us watch and be sober. He even says, therefore, let us not sleep. Look at the next verse. Verse 10, for the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and has covered your heads, namely the seers. Even the leadership of the day was blind. And and how can the blind lead the blind except into a pit? They weren't listening to God. God was giving them the intel necessary for the battle, and they refused to listen So God is in in essence saying, fine, I'll cut off all communication. I'll go radio silent. I'm not going to give you any more information because you're just blind and deaf anyway. You're choosing to be blind and and, and ignore it. Amos picks up a a similar thought. Listen to this in Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. A famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Radio silence from heaven on high. We know there's a 400-year period in between when the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, and they call it the silent years where God did very little to proclaim himself. In verse 11, it says, The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. So they were. They, he had given the information. God had given the intel, and and they were hiding behind any excuse rather than listening to the message, rather than turning to the Lord. The literate were refusing to read it. I'm sorry, it's sealed. I can't open it. So they turned to the illiterate. Have you ever sat with somebody who can't read? Have you ever asked them to read to you? That's, I mean, that's where we're walking with Kindu right now, is he's just beginning to learn how to read in our language. He didn't know how to read in his language. And to try to sit and listen to him read the books that he's reading, it's agonizing because he doesn't know how. And, and to listen to so, an illiterate person read, is you're not going to get much from it, are you? They might be able to look at the pictures. They might pick up a word here or there. But to get the message that's being delivered, you're not going to get that if you're asking the illiterate to read for you. Same is true of the message the Lord was bringing. Therefore the Lord says, "...inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor Me with their lips, but they have removed their hearts far from Me, and their fear toward Me is taught by the commandments of men." This is a star verse. You should have this one starred in your Bible or highlighted or underlined or however you do it. This is a familiar verse to you and I. Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, as they say. And their hearts were far from God. Jesus kind of calls them whitewashed tombs. You tracking? It's the idea that they looked good on the outside, they were cleaned up on the outside, they presented the proper airs, but their hearts, the inward inward was far from Him. We can learn from this verse, and I'm going to camp here for just a second because there's much to be learned from this verse. God takes note of our worship of Him and is able to determine if it's simply a learned behavior or if it's heartfelt if you sit in church for any amount of time, if you're a new Christian and you sit in church for weeks, probably less than that, a few times, you pick up on the things that are quote-unquote worship. I know if I just raise my hands the right way, or if I close my eyes and lift my chin a little bit, or if I, you know, then I, I can put on airs. I can fake everybody in this room to think that I'm worshiping. And we pick up on those things. But the point being, we may be able to fool everybody around us, but we're not fooling God. And certainly those of us who have walked longer with them should not have to do that. We should be able to bring ourselves to a position of worship. God takes note of our worship of Him. And He's able to determine if it's simply a learned behavior, if we're just bringing it with rote, or if it's truly heartfelt. Flip over to Matthew chapter 15. Let's look at something for a second. Matthew chapter 15. This is where Jesus quotes this verse in Isaiah. That's why it's familiar. is because Jesus goes back and digs it out. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. We've been picking on the Pharisees on Sunday morning for a few weeks now. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in this conversation. In Matthew 15, verse 7, He says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying... These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There's our verse. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, he wants to make this now a teaching moment for all of us. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth That defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I don't think Jesus is particularly worried about that. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Hmm, maybe Jesus was reading Isaiah chapter 29 as he was talking about this. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us, Peter. I love Peter. (laughs) He's just, he's very simple, like me. (laughs) Please explain this. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. God is watching our heart in the matter of worship. John chapter 4, familiar chapter, Jesus with the woman at the well corrects her on some of her theology, but then says that there is a day coming in which all will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And I know for me... And I would imagine for you as well, that's sometimes a struggle. To gather in a corporate place or even in the privacy of our own home to worship God in spirit and in truth is a struggle. We come bearing burdens, the burdens of the day. On a Wednesday night, I think that's sometimes my greatest struggle to worship in spirit and truth is just because we come with the burdens of the day. If you find yourself in that instance, what do you do? How do you overcome that? Well, God knows our heart and He's concerned for our heart. So the best thing, if we're burdened to the point that worship is difficult, then we ask God, we pray to Him to remove the burden. Lord, remove this burden that I may worship You. May that be the prayer of our heart. It's okay to... to, Enter into a position of worship feeling that way. I don't recommend ending your time of worship that way. Hopefully, by the time you've worked through it, you're at a position where you can praise Him and worship Him. What, the, what, what had happened in Israel was they had made this a habit. They weren't worshiping the Spirit and the truth at any time. Be it the festivals or whatever. They just put on the air. They they just put on the, the appearance that they were worshiping. But in truth, their hearts were... Far from them, and he says the, the the distinction here is: Are you doing? Are you worshiping God out of a love for Him, or are you worshiping because? Back to our verse in in uh, in twenty nine, right? Um, their heart they have removed their hearts far from me, verse thirteen, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of of men. So the question is. What is the where is your reverence for God coming from? Is it out of a love for him? Or is it out of, well, this is what we're supposed to do. These are the traditions that we've grown up in. If I just raise my hands in the right way. John chapter 14 would say, If you love me, then keep my commandments. It's from a, a position of love that we should be obedient to him. Our worship is to be driven by a love for God. How about this guy, Augustine? I don't know a lot about him, but he's one of our the church's forefathers, he said this. This is a crazy statement. Love God and do whatever you please. How about that? Love God and do whatever you please. Whatever I want to do, as long as it's driven by the love of God, it's okay. But That's not the whole quote. People often take that and, and, and would use that as a license to do whatever they want, but they forget about the stipulation, love God. And if you're loving God, that's going to limit what you do because you're loving Him, you're allowing Him to limit. The whole quote, love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. If you you make the love of God your driving factor in everything that you do, then your soul won't dissipate from that, won't won't leave that path. You're not going to do anything to offend the one that you love. The lack of love is what created the Pharisees. The, the, The fact that we have to establish rules and regulations rather than just loving people, that's what creates legalism and and Phariseeism. The idea of legalism, which would be ruling by rules rather than ruling by love, is always a confession of failure. Did you hear that? Legalism is always a confession of failure. It's a failure to teach people to love God And as the result of loving Him, we obey Him. If we fail to teach people to love God, the result is legalism. And that's a declaration of our failure to teach people to love. Legalism is a confession of failure both for the church and for a nation. When a nation is creating more laws in order to control the morality of people, it's a declaration that people's hearts are no longer driven by love. Does that make sense? When a nation's creating more laws in order to control the morality or direct the morality of people, it's a declaration that the people's hearts are no longer driven by love. In other words, more laws equals greater moral decay. 2014, in the United States there were 40,000 laws passed between the national level and the state level. 40,000 laws in 2014 alone passed. What does that tell you about the state of our nation? We are trying to direct morality by governing rather than by trusting that people are going to love. And the truth of the matter is the people, we, the people have drifted so far from God that there is nothing that will drive us to that love. So the only option we have is to try to legislate it. But that too is a failure. All right, soapbox done. Verse 14. Still got a long way to go. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. And the work, their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? In other words, woe to those who think that they're keeping their sin a secret. You know, that's a joke, right? You know that that's an impossibility. We do not keep our sin a secret. We may be able to hide it from our friends, from our family, from the people that we see every day. But there is no such thing as a secret sin. Every sin you commit, you're committing in God's living room. He's watching the entire thing. There is nothing hidden from Him. Uh, Psalm forty four twenty one: Would not God search this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. There is nothing we hide from God. He sees it all. So it's foolish to say, oh, we're just going to hide it. Who sees us? Who knows us? 16, surely you have things turned around, I would think. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. That's the foolishness of secret sin. It's like a pot saying to the potter, you didn't make me. When clearly the the potter's hands are still dripping in the clay that just formed the pot. That's the foolishness of secret sins. The pot saying to the potter, he did not make me. It's perhaps the height of man's pride when he rejects God as a creator. You didn't make me, God. Hmm, where do we sit as a nation today? What is taught in our schools? It just evolved. Look at the days we live in. It is the height of man's pride when he rejects God as a creator. Verse 17. It is not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of the obscurity and out of darkness. God forever is wooing them back and he's always giving us a hope of that that time. He's always giving us the promise to say, yes, judgment is coming, but the remnant will succeed. Yes, these things have to happen, but there is always hope. And Lebanon here is the example used. Lebanon was the forest. Lebanon was the, 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 the cedars of Lebanon were famous, and there was this massive forest. And God is saying it's going to be brought low, right? It's going to be turned into a field. The forest will be brought low, just as the people would be humbled. Yet, it says it will be a fruitful field. In that humbling, God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. It's going to have the proper effect. The people will repent in that humbling being brought low. And eventually God would grow them back into a great forest. As, as he rose, rose up the nation of Israel and will raise it up again, especially in the millennial kingdom. Verses 17-24 through 24 are looking at that millennial kingdom. God is humbling you tonight. I have my seasons where the Lord just seems to keep turning me over and over. If God is humbling you, make it fruitful that He might grow you again. Lord, have Your way in me. Chisel away the things that need chiseled. Let let this laying low, bringing me from forest to field, be fruitful, God. Teach me what You want me to, to know. It says in verse nineteen the humble shall also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor men or I'm sorry, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the holy One of Israel, that being Christ, for the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who makes a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate?' and turn aside the just by empty words. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Interesting. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. He calls the nation of Israel here Jacob. He he reverts back to the old name. God had changed the name from Jacob to Israel. But he reverts back to the old name, reminding them of their past, reminding them of their sin and folly. The name Jacob means trickster, the one who would fool. They appeared to love God, but their hearts were far from him. And certainly that is acting as a trickster. But what he says there is Jacob shall not now be ashamed. By God's mercy, they're not going to be ashamed. God is going to redeem them through this. In verse twenty-three, but when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the holy one of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in or sorry these also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained will learn doctrine. The day is going to come when the people of Israel will worship in spirit and in truth. Their eyes will be opened. The the veil of their hearts will be removed. Chapter 30, the woe continues. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of Me, and who devise plans, but not of My Spirit, that they may add to sin. Their rebellion in all of this was they were taking counsel, but not from God. They weren't checking in with Him as God's people. You'd think that's where you would turn. He had the right plan. God had the right plan. He always has the right plan, in case you were wondering. Are we listening? Were they listening? No, they were taking counsel from others. Look at verse 2 who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt then you know we know that through this Assyrian attack they made an alliance the nation of Judah made an alliance with Egypt and G- and God is here saying they didn't check with me don't Just as you read the Old Testament, as you read the Word of God, don't ever go back to Egypt. That's pretty safe advice. As you walk with Christ, Egypt is the representation of the world. Don't ever go back to Egypt. Don't ever seek out Egypt's advice. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and the trust and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at zone, and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them, or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. The burden against the beasts of the south, through a land of trouble and anguish, from which came the lioness and the lion, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. That just sounds horrid. (laughs) I don't like the ones that stay on the ground, let alone the flying ones, let alone the fiery flying ones. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. This is now speaking of the animals that would carry the tribute to Egypt. They were going to pay Egypt to make an alliance with them. And God is saying it's a complete waste. Because as God would declare, Egypt is not going to be able to help them. They're just a shadow. They have no strength in of them themselves. Egypt was going to be wiped out. So for them to pay this money to Egypt was foolishness. Verse 7, for the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Hem shebeth Make sense? No. <laughs> well, if you knew what Rahab Hamshabboth means, maybe it would. He's saying, don't pay them. Don't give them the money. It's not going to benefit you. God's saying, hey, turn to me. I'll do it for free. I, I, want-, I want to love you in this way. Don't, don't pay money to a-, a shadow. Therefore, I've called her Rahab Hamshabboth. Rahab sits idle is what it translates. Rahab was the name for Egypt. So Egypt sits idle. It's of no benefit. Don't pay uh, Egypt because they're just going to sit idle. Now go, write it before them on a tablet, and note it on a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and ever. God is telling Isaiah, hey, write this down. Because the time's going to come when they say, they're going to come back to me and say, why didn't you tell us this was going to happen? And God's going to say, I did. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8. Read it. Write it down, Isaiah. That this is a rebellious people, lying children. Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. Who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Wow. Rebellion now in full effect. Don't tell us the truth. We don't want to hear the truth. Don't tell us what God has to say. Sound familiar? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. What happened in Judah then happens in the world now turning away from sound doctrine because they have itching ears. So much of today's teaching from the pulpit is just philosophy, just psychology. It's just humanism. There is so little biblical teaching happening today. It's a shame. Verse 12, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. The wall is going to tumble down, is what God is saying. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare, so that so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth, Or to take water from the cistern. The destruction will be so complete, there will be nothing left. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. That's another star verse. Another underlined verse. In returning and rest you shall be saved. God's just saying, just come back to me Don't worry about making plans with Egypt. Don't worry about paying tribute to them. Just come back to me. Return and rest in me. And in that you shall be saved. It's what's best for you. It's what's best for us. Just to turn to Him. Psalm 46.10, we mentioned it a couple Sundays ago. Be still and know that I am God. Rest in Him. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. God's like, I got this. Just return to me. Rest in me. This is a great verse. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. I took this little section from David Guzik's commentary. He's saying, trust in me. God is saying, trust in me rather than trusting in the world. Rather than turning to the world, trust in God. And trusting trusting God's promise means returning. That's what we read here. If there's a conspicuous disobedience in our lives, we must return to the Lord's ways. Outright disobedience is never consistent with real trust in God's promise. Returning also has the idea of drawing close to the Lord. Trusting God's promise means to rest. When we trust God, we don't have to strive for ourselves, we don't have to run all about trying to protect or guard ourselves. We have the best protector. The best guard in God. We can rest in Him. And when we do, it shows that we are trusting in His promises. Trusting God's promise means quietness. You don't need to argue for your side when God is on your side. Be quiet before Him and before others. It shows that you really trust Him. Trusting God's promise means confidence. You aren't given to despair or fear because you trust God's promise. You know He can and will come through. And you have a profound confidence in the God who loves you. All these things together mean a real trust in God's promise. And it means that we shall be saved. And it means that we shall find strength. There is no person walking this earth more powerful than, than a child of God boldly and properly trusting the promises of a living God. Trust in Him. But as the end of the verse says, they don't. They don't. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. Their plans were not going to unfold the way that they hoped. Generally speaking, the plans we make outside of God's will never unfold the way that we hope. (laughs) God always uses those in a different way. Oh, we'll flee on horses. Oh, you're going to flee all right. (laughs) You know? It says in 17, 1,000 shall flee at the threat of one. And the threat of, at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. The idea of the pole there would be a, a tree stripped of all its branches, you know, of no value. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one. That's the inversion of the promise given in the law of Moses back in um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. If you, if you follow in the ways of God, one thousand will flee from you. But now in the the inversion, 1,000 shall flee. 1,000 of you are going to flee at the threat of one. Therefore, the Lord will wait. What a beautiful verse. Therefore, the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you. And therefore, He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. You want to be blessed? And I know you all do. Wait for the Lord. What a a glorious verse. The Lord will wait for his children. You want to wander off the path God has for you? God's like, I'll wait. You, You wander, prodigal. Come back when you're ready. I'll wait for you. He never disowns us. Right? The come thou found, the line from come thou found, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's our hearts. We we, we are so prone to chase after the shiny things of this world, yet He waits on us to return that He might shower us in His mercy. And what an interesting statement. He, He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Think about that for just a minute. How can mercy and justice coexist. Right? Because mercy is not getting what you deserve, and justice is getting what you deserve. So how can mercy and justice coexist other than in a loving God? He is both just and the justifier, Romans tells us. He upholds the law by pouring out our wrath on His Son, and in that He's just. But in that He is also merciful in that He exchanges our wretchedness for God's righteousness. His mercy is offered to us through the righteousness of Christ. So He is both merciful and just. Let's finish it. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner more. but your eyes shall see your teachers. This is, yes, they're going to walk through adversity and affliction, but They're they're going to yield to the hand of God in that and and then things will turn. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. I long for that in my life. Man, I long for that in my life. God, just show me the way you want me to go. Let me hear the way you the step you want me to take. Am I to turn to the right? There's a day coming when you, you're going to hear the word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. In the kingdom age, when Christ is ruling from Jerusalem, we're going to have a hypersensitivity to the direction of the Lord. It's going to be clear then. It's not so clear for me now. You will also defy... You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornaments of your molded image of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. In that day, when we are living for him, you're going to set aside, you're going to throw away the idols, you're going to cast those things away that you had put in the throne of God, in the throne of God, in, in his place. You're going to rid your house. You're going to rid your life of the things that draw us away from God. right? James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Get away from here, right? That you might follow after Him. Then He will give the rain of your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. In that day, there'll be material blessing in the kingdom age. That probably doesn't sound like a wonderful thing to you and I. Maybe it does. We probably all ate today. How many of our brothers and sisters had to scrounge for food across across the globe? How many people went to bed tonight wondering what their next meal would be? That This probably sounds pretty good to that brother or sister living in true poverty. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers, streams of water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold "...as the light of the seven of seven days, in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of His people and heals the stroke of their wound. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger, and His burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation. His tongue is a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility." And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. This is talking about the days building up to when Christ will reign in the millennial kingdom the The days of the great tribulation and the, and the difficulties that will come against it the, 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 the speaks of the sun and the moon in the book of revelation and the issues that will be had there. But notice verse twenty eight and there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people. The judgment that was coming was controlled by the hand of the Lord, just like a a horse and bridle. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept and gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. When Assyria was going to go down and they eventually would go down, the people of God will worship God. The Lord will cause His glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of His arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire, with scattering tempest and hailstones. For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as he strikes with a rod. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps. And in battles of brandishing, he will fight with it. For Tophet was established of old, Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. Ending on a Merry Christmas thought. (laughs) Not so much. For Tophet, Tophet there is, just so we understand, is Gehenna, the eternal lake of fire. The king he speaks of in that last verse is King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And the point being, as goes the king, so goes the country to the grave. How many Assyrians do you hang out with today? Right? Never to be heard from again. Good work. Stuck with it. What's the Lord saying to you and I as we head into uh, yet again this crazy Christmas season? Rest in Him. Stop making plans with the world. Find your hope and strength in Him. He's got the plan. Just submit to it. Wait on Him. His timing's perfect. Don't venture away from that. And his mercy is always extended. He waits for us to come to him. Amen? All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for sticking uh, with us, Lord, even when we wander from you. You are forever faithful, Lord, even when we are faithless. Thank you for reaching out in love to us. I pray that we would worship You in spirit and in truth, and when our hearts are burdened with the things of this world, God, that we would just lay them at the altar where You would want us to lay them, that we might just come before You and sing our praises unto You, Lord, that we might rest in You, for Your yoke is easy and Your burden is light. Help us to be still and know that You're God. We seek You out in these days. We lay down our burdens at your feet. The cares and the troubles of this world grow strangely dim as we fix our eyes on you. We love you, Lord. Let's walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen.